ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Fifth of January, two thousand and twenty-two. Sent a brochure for Venice, as we regularly are, in which the Orient Express figures prominently, emphasizing the luxury side of the journey and its huge cost. What it isn't any more is an adventure. Venice by train used to feel like life, crossing the Channel. Boarding the Paris train at Boulogne, getting a seat in the dining car before going round Paris on the Centure and finding one sleeping car. It was an international train, headed, I think, for Istanbul, but overnight transformed and in certain sections into something much more domestic. I went first, thinking rightly that this meant luxury. But venturing further down the train, one found humbler passengers spilling out into the corridor along with their belongings in bulging cardboard boxes, hens, and on one occasion, a goat. When one eventually arrived in Venice, where I'd never been, in the late afternoon, it did seem like an achievement. One came out of the station to find the canals not sequestered away in some tourist area, but there on the steps of the station itself, Venice the only place that lived up to its publicity. On the Vaporetto, one passed the fire station, the gleaming boats ready arrayed, and that seemed wondrous too, that here even the fire engines were in boat form. I stayed two or three times at the Pensione Academia, which was still off-limits to package holidays and had something of an English vicarage about it. Most nights we ate at Locanda Montin, the sight of its red lantern and assurance that we'd managed yet again to find the way. Always the same menu, melon, parmesan, lamb's liver with sage, and to finish, a huge apple. Venice is the only city I've been in, with the possible exception of Cambridge, where there was nothing to offend the eye, and going in winter as I did in those days, one would find the Piazza San Marco empty. It was at the Pensione Academia, with its thin walls, that I first overheard sexual intercourse, and the shout of a man coming. Vengo! Vengo! 28th of January Today was Dad's birthday. He was very difficult to buy a present for, not liking his birthday being acknowledged, 
and remained so all his life. Mam was easy enough. A piece of Staffordshire would do it, cracked probably, or chipped, like all her antiques. Then, when I was in beyond the fringe, I reckoned I had enough money to get Dad something he really wanted, namely a decent violin. Leeds had a good violin shop, Barmforth's, so I asked them to pick out three violins for him to try without telling him the price. The one he chose was an Italian fiddle, a Degane, with a wonderful sweetness of tone, which he played in the last years of his life. It was then given to the Benslow Music Trust, which provides violins for young players. 23rd of February I loved jokes and used to be fed them almost on a weekly basis by Barry Cryer as one of his extensive and distinguished clientele that included Judy Dench and Andrew Marr. He would ring up and, without bothering to say who it was, would embark on the joke. When he'd finished, he'd say, Well, I'll give you back your day, and ring off. The last joke he told me, only a week or two before his death, concerned a couple walking down the street when they spot someone across the road. "'Isn't that the Archbishop of Canterbury?' says the wife. "'Is it?' says the husband. "'Go and ask him,' she says. So the man goes over, apologises for troubling him and says, "'Aren't you the Archbishop of Canterbury?' Bugger off. He returns to his wife. What did he say? He said, Bugger off. Oh, what a shame, says the wife. Now we shall never know. The regular scenario for many of Barry's jokes concerns St. Peter at the gates of heaven, so that when he finally arrived there last month, it could have been no surprise. 24th of February One doubtful blessing of my new and sophisticated hearing aids is that I can hear every rumble and gurgle of my stomach as well as the children next door. 18th of March Geoffrey Palmer's memorial service from St Paul's Covent Garden one of a growing number, I imagine, of those held on Zoom. I'm unexpectedly on the verge of tears for someone who always put a smile on my face in art and life. I once told him that I was hoping to write a play, the first line of which was a woman saying, My third husband was most unsatisfactory. Sodomy was the bugbear. They seemed to have settled at Lytham. He always inquired about the progress of the script which, needless to say, never got written. Furbank it was rather than wild. Geoffrey played Warren, the King's Doctor, in the film of The Madness of King George, with Siddle Shaps as Peeps, who set great store by the King's motions. "'Oh, the stool, the stool,' said Warren. "'My dear Peeps, the persistent excellence of the stool,' has been one of this disease's most tedious features. 
When will you get it into your head that one can produce a copious, regular, and exquisitely turned evacuation every day of the week and still be a stranger to reason? One of the pleasures, and indeed consolations, of a memorial service is in looking round to see who's there, not something that's possible on Zoom. So, ideally, it should be a roving Zoom, not, I'm sure, that Geoffrey would have thought he was worth the trouble. 28th of March, Yorkshire We vary our evening stroll, which in my case is more of a trudge, by going up the village to the church to sit in the churchyard. The birds are noisy, rooks and crows mostly, though, unlike London, no seagulls. And here come the bell-ringers for their Monday night practice, and quite frail they look, too. The key's lost, so the ringers are very happy to chat and gossip while it's located. Someone with Ukrainian relatives is taking in a family, and there's been a dance and coffee morning in aid. Now the church is found to be open, so no key is required. The ringers go up the tower as we walk home, and as we're putting the key in our own door, the bells start. When we first came to the village in 1966, one used to be woken in the middle of the night by curlews calling. This doesn't happen now, though at Bleak Bank Farm they mark where the nests are so the eggs don't get crushed. That wouldn't have happened in 1966. They are spectacular birds, and today we see a pair of them on the top of a wall near Lockland. They apparently come back each year to nest in the same field. 16th of April, Yorkshire I used to love anemones. They were colourful, architectural, with little roofs, and always able to arrange themselves in a jar. They were also cheap, and now a part of the past. Once to be had in Leeds Market for 50p, today, though much leggier than they were, and possibly French, they are nearer £10. 13th of May on our evening walk, we're coming slowly along past the bookshop, me with my stick, when a skateboarder detaches himself from a group of lads and comes for us at high speed. We don't flinch, though he comes perilously close and fast. Rupert says, quite mildly, that's a dangerous thing to do, whereupon the boy apologises. However... Another of the group then steps forward and says, Are you father and son? While it's not a question that requires an answer, it's not friendly either. I say, come away, and we walk on. 29th of May Remember as a child at Halliday Place in Armley, Leeds, when Dad was rubbing his face with a sometimes ill-smelling towel, his face used to squeak. 22nd of June When, in 2019, I had a flutter with my heart and a momentary loss of speech, 
It must have been around the time of the standoff between Boris Johnson and the Supreme Court, because the young doctor in A&E at UCH, testing my mental capacity, asked me what the word was for closing down Parliament, i.e. proroguing, which I got in one. 7th of July I am a messy eater, messy altogether, Rupert would say, and getting more so by the day. I'm what my mother used to call a mullocks, and once did a recital in the double cube room at Wilton, in a velvet suit, but with my flies open. These days I prepare, or am prepared, for meals in an all-encompassing tea towel, as if I'm going to the barber's, and before going out I'm given the once-over that would not disgrace an RSM. You look well, people say, and so I should. 14th of July Rupert gets some testing kits from the pharmacy, and I go through the procedure of a cotton wool stick up one nostril and the same up the other, and then a quarter of an hour or so while we wait for the result. Had Sickert still been painting, this is the kind of scene he would have recorded, a seemingly aimless couple waiting for the result. It's negative, which, since we're both feeling rotten, is a slight disappointment. So hot that even the gulls have fallen silent. At 92A, Dad's butcher shop in Otley Road in Headingley, he had an antiquated fridge which ran on a fan belt. In hot weather the belt overheated, just at the time when, should the fridge break down, bankruptcy threatened. With the fridge full of turkeys, Christmas was another perilous period. 22nd of August, Yorkshire Write it, and it happens. In the monologue, The Shrine, I wrote for production during Covid, a biker travelling down the A65 dies in a crash, and I imagined incurious sheep gathering to look at the scene of the accident. We are en route down the A65 for the funeral of a close friend, Michael Hindle, my solicitor. Almost at Skipton, we're in a traffic jam. There's been a fatal accident, with an ambulance already there, a police car, and what looks like a body bag. We wait, and as we wait, a herd of cows in a field overlooking the road slowly lines up and observes the scene. 10th of September I must be one of the very few of the late Queen's subjects to have said, or almost said, the word erection in her presence. It was in 1961, in London's Fortune Theatre, where I was appearing with my colleagues and co-writers Peter Cook, Jonathan Miller and Dudley Moore in Beyond the Fringe. It was a smash hit, with every night the audience studied with celebrities, and accordingly at one performance there was the Queen. My particular tour de force in the second half was an Anglican sermon, 
which always went well. Less successful, earlier in the show, was a monologue, stand-up it would be called today, on the subject of corporal and capital punishment, both in those days still going strong. Young enough then to believe that theatre and indeed satire could do some good, I was proud of this piece, though it garnered few laughs and was referred to by the rest of the cast as the boring old man sketch. The character I played was vehement in his defence of corporal and capital punishment, while strongly rebutting any suggestion that the thought of either gave him pleasure. On the contrary, I intoned, they produced no reaction whatsoever. They didn't produce much of a reaction from the audience either, and on the night the Queen was present, none at all. To be fair, the management had urged me to tone down the offending sketch, particularly the erection-reaction gag, but rather self-righteously, I refused. There wasn't much laughter that night in the rest of the show, which normally went by in gales of hilarity, but with the audience only concerned with what the royal party was thinking, much of it passed in awkward silence. But in those days when she came, I mean, it was very unusual for her to go to the theatre anyway, but with the Queen in the audience killed it stone dead. I mean, she, she, the audience, whatever, you know, however well you performed, it, it would go by in total silence. Um, and then Peter Cook, um, he, he made it worse by, by uh, just before the curtain went up, saying, whatever you do, don't say fuck. <laughs> and of course, as you said, <laughs> you should never dream of saying anyway. Oh, it was it was agony. Her party included um, Douglas Hume, who was the prime minister, and um, half a dozen people who um, you wouldn't get a laugh out of anyway. So, I imagine Princess Margaret was the opposite, though. Uh, I was, she used to go to the theatre quite a lot. But on the other hand, she was quite... I mean, um, I think she went to a Stephen Sondheim celebration and as she was going in, she said, I hate Sondheim. <laughs> <laughs> well, she came to... She came, she came to um, 40 Years On when she was married to Tony jo uh, Armstrong Jones and as it, he just gossiped with Patrick Garland, who was a friend of his, but she uh, insisted on seeing the boys who had no idea who she was because they, you know, they would have known the Queen if she'd turned up um, and chatted to them and was totally um, not the picture, you know, that uh, Craig Brown did, <laughs> which is such a good book. Anyway. It's always been assumed that the late Queen didn't much like the theatre, which can't be said of her successor, who's often to be found at plays. And if it's a comedy, far from dampening down an audience, Charles's presence and his loud laughter helped to get them going. I don't think Her Majesty ever came to any other of my plays, though not, I'm sure, due to my youthful betise. Still, when I next wrote about the Queen... 
it might also have caused offence. This was a question of attribution put on at the National Theatre in 1988 and the first time the Queen had been represented on the stage. This needs to be said. Prunella Scales' seamless portrayal of Her Majesty not only preceded, it also surpassed any that came after. Physically much the same as HMQ, Prue had no claim or aspirations to glamour. She even had a touch of the suburban. The sad thing is that only the National Theatre audience saw and were stunned by this performance. Though John Stettinger later filmed the play, where HMQ was supported by her corgis, the magic didn't quite transfer. But Prue was the first and the best. In the central scene of the play, the Queen has a long conversation with the keeper of the royal picture, Sir Anthony Blunt. He is a long-time Soviet agent, and one of the questions implicit in the scene is whether the Queen knows this. A few years later, I met Lord Charteris, who was the Queen's secretary at the time. Ah, yes, he said, I never saw the play, but I gather the issue was whether the Queen knew and whether Blunt knew that the Queen knew. The truth is, they both knew. But that, of course, has not to be said. The scene in question was a pleasure to write. It brought home to me that HMQ, as she was billed in the programme, was a person like no other, a woman who'd been everywhere, met everyone, and to whom nothing comes as a surprise. At one point, Blunt mentions Venice. Venice? Ah, oh, yes, the Queen remarks. We were in Venice last year. Unusual place. Though she never saw the play, Her Majesty may have seen the film, supposedly remarking, Oh no, she's not like me at all. She makes wisecracks. I never do that. But she did, and indeed about the play. When Prunella Scales was being given the CBE and was kneeling before Her Majesty for the ribbon to be put round her neck, the Queen whispered, I suppose you think you ought to be doing this. A laugh-out-loud wisecrack in anybody's book. We had a, a real job um, getting permission. We didn't really get permission. But um, I, I went to see, um, I can't remember his name, but the press secretary. And uh, he said, um, oh, no, it's unthinkable. You can't possibly do that. Um, uh, couldn't you make it Queen Victoria? <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> absurd, Rob. Anyway, uh, um, but anyway, Richard Eyre went ahead with it, because uh, he was head of the National Theatre. But we were rehearsing the play when the Queen came to the National Theatre to give it its royal suffix, I mean, to, to, to name it the Royal National Theatre. And had she asked to go round, she would have come in on a rehearsal. But anyway, she didn't do, fortunately. In 2006, I had the notion of what upset it would cause should the Queen ever become an avid reader. 
A long, short story, The Uncommon Reader, too, was a pleasure to write. The Queen, dry, quizzical, and absolved from any desire to be liked, is a gift to an author, and the reader throughout is on her side. Had it been Elizabeth I, it might have been a celebratory mask, as Her Majesty comes well out of every encounter, besting her ministers, her courtiers, and even her devoted subjects. I never met the Queen, except once as part of an assembly line, and I'm glad, as I would have been cripplingly shy. For me, she was a creature of myth, and I was happy for her to remain so. My notion of her set out in a speech made by the Queen herself in The Uncommon Reader. One has met, and indeed entertained, many visiting heads of state, some of them unspeakable crooks, and their wives not much better. One has given one's white-gloved hand to hands that were steeped in blood, and conversed politely with men who personally slaughtered children. One has waded through excrement and gore. To be queen, I've often thought, the one essential item of equipment, a pair of thigh-length boots. One is often said to have a fund of common sense, but that's another way of saying that one doesn't have much else. And accordingly, perhaps, I have at the instance of my various governments been forced to participate, if only passively, in decisions I consider ill-advised and often shameful. Sometimes one has felt like a scented candle, sent in to perfume or aerate a policy. Monarchy these days, just a government-issue deodorant. I had first seen the Queen as a boy of fourteen, when, as Princess Elizabeth, she and the Duke of Edinburgh visited Leeds not long after their marriage. They were staying at Howard House, which was where the knobs always stayed, before driving through Old Woodley into Leeds. I went over to Old Woodley from Headingley on my bike and joined the crowds waiting by the ring road. Two things struck me. The stately pace of the motorcade, speed or lack of it, almost the prerogative of royalty, and, a total surprise to me, Princess Elizabeth's complexion, lit up, luminous, and almost unearthly. Unimpressed, it'll be cosmetics, said my dad, and maybe it was, but it was pretty startling. Dad was there on the other occasion I saw her, in 1966, also in Leeds, but this time not far from our own back door and Mr. Roddy, the barber's. Driving still at the same stately pace through Headingley and past the end of Shire Oak Street. Mam was ill and couldn't come out and wait, but with Dad in his eternal trilby and raincoat, we stood among a fairly sparse crowd. We didn't wave, still less cheer, but what happened was so unlike my father, it nearly fetched a tear to my eye. A second before the royal car came past, Dad took off his hat. Where this gesture came from, I can't think. 
Royalty, like most public ceremonial, use won't to dismiss as slobber. But somewhere, almost a surprise to himself, he was a loyal subject. And the same, I suppose, goes for me too. 23rd of September I knew Hilary Mantel was a good writer long before she fell for Thomas Cromwell, and it was a kind of love affair. I read her earlier novel, Every Day's Mother's Day, about a northern social worker, and found its dialogue funny and enviable. Her much-lauded characterisation of Cromwell was harder to take, my feeling being that she hankered after him being Montaigne. For novels about the same period, I prefer C.J. Sansom's Shard Lake stories, though finding the 16th century too grim for me, with the block always round the corner. Mind you, I don't like tension. I must be the only one of his readers who found Raymond Briggs's The Snowman too much to take. 9th of October Susan and David Neve are the authors of East Yorkshire and York, a heritage shell guide, which they sent me this morning. On the lines of the previous volume, for the West Riding, edited by William Glossop, it's splendidly illustrated, while, like the original shell guides, being chatty and occasionally eccentric. Glossop reveals that Ivan Avello wrote Perchance to Dream in Howroyd Hall near Barkisland in Halifax, and that the original stage set was a copy of the sitting-room in this many-gabled, big-chimneyed house. Not a titbit you'll find in Pefsner, one drawback of which is that he will occasionally snub the enthusiast who's not looking for the expert opinion, hence Betjeman's dislike. No such possibility in the Neves book, which makes one want to clear off to Bridlington this very morning. At home in Yorkshire, we're host to some newts, so I'm happy to find a medieval newt carved on the wall of Orton Church. This is thought to be a not-so-enigmatic reference to Robert Ask, leader of the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, martyred by Henry VIII. Ask being a folk name for Newt. Less memorably, the Neves refer to a railway carriage perched perilously on the cliff edge at Skipsey. Unless there is another railway carriage at Skipsey, it was the one where my brother, my auntie Myra and I spent a grisly rain-soaked holiday in 1948. You won't find that in Pefsner either. 22nd of October. One casualty of Covid, and I don't think it's age, has been chronology. These days I'm often confused by what day it is, not to mention the date. Keeping the diary has been a different sort of casualty, as politics become difficult to ignore and Boris Johnson tedious to chronicle. By the time I'd got round to Liz Truss, she'd gone. Though this annual bulletin has never tried to be other than serendipitous, this year's instalment seems particularly patchy, 
while being a fair representation of my routine. The largest segment is occasioned by the death of Her Majesty the Queen. Some years ago, I was one of several writers asked by Radio 4 to record their thoughts on Her Majesty's eventual death. When, earlier this year, the broadcast became relevant, I didn't hear it, leading me to think it might not have been considered appropriate. Happily, I was wrong, and the talk did go out, but I thought it was worth repeating here. November the 6th. BBC Four broadcasts a repeat of Jackanory from, I think, 2001, with me reading some of Alice Through the Looking Glass. I've no memory of this particular programme, and though I did Jackanory several times, unlike most of the contributors, I didn't always welcome the assignment. The trouble was that Jackanory being technically straightforward, it was thought of as a useful exercise for trainee directors. Read from autocue, the script required no special skill, but one found oneself rehearsing it three or four times over, to the extent that when one got to the transmission, I actually nodded off. A case of going again, actor asleep. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.